Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to AWS Tech Chat. Russ here, and as always, I have Dr. Pete with me as well. Hello, Dr. Pete. Hey, Russ, and hi, listeners. It's great to be back. It's uh, episode 11, and it's 2017, so happy new year to everyone, and happy Chinese new year to you too, Russ. Thank you, Pete. I believe it's now the year of the rooster. Or is it the chicken? Because I think we looked it up before, and there's some conflicting information about chicken or rooster. Yes, so if you'd like to let us know, please do. Please let us know if it's chicken or rooster. We like to make sure we're factual. <laughs> very, very important. <laughs> correct, correct. So it's been an amazing year because uh, a lot's happened in 2016, Russ. It has. Give us a quick roundup, Pete, of, uh, of the current state of things. Yeah, look, you know, as you guys remember, the last couple of episodes, it seemed like we were launching a region every episode. So we are now at 16 geographic regions worldwide, uh, which takes us to 42 availability zones. And uh, we have another two AWS regions planned in uh, France in China. So uh, that's coming online in the next couple of months. Uh, and in terms of the AWS global network, the AWS edge locations now consist of 68 points of presence, which is our uh, DNS and uh, CloudFront CDN points, which are you know in US, Canada, Europe, Asia, South America, and of course, Australia as well. So Russ, we're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, if that wasn't enough, um, as of November, so this is valid as of November, we've had 59 price reductions since AWS launched in 2006. And that's, uh, you know, that's price reductions, you know, without any competitive pressures, just because we actually found that we managed to uh, improve operationally and we passed those savings on to our customers. So uh, amazing stats. Yes, indeed. The other interesting one, Pete, is if you look at the number of significant services and features released each year, uh, it increases almost exponentially. So you kind of start in 2011 with 80 and then uh, goes up from there. So 2012, 160, following year 280, 516, 722 in 2015. And then last year was over 1,000. Yeah, which is basically 2.7 and a bit uh, services and features launched every single day last year, which uh, is uh, pretty, pretty, pretty staggering when you think about the pace of innovation. It is, and, and I think what that means, Pete, is that uh, AWS Tech Chat is here to help you to help you manage the number of uh, releases at the pace that we release them. That's right. Let us do all the heavy lifting of doing the research for you guys and uh, hopefully provide and report the most interesting things. So here's another interesting uh, uh, bit of trivia. So as of October 2015, the Snowball, AWS Snowball, has made over 5 billion object inserts into Amazon S3. So uh, wow. Snowball has been traveling around the planet. And uh, I believe at last count, it circled the planet more than 100 times, which is significant, very much on scale. Wow, nice one. Mm. Now, uh, a couple of episodes ago, we did a little deep dive onto IPv6, uh, and um, we we said that there's quite a few changes going on there. What's happened recently there, Pete, in regards to um, IPv6 support? 
Yes, so uh, if you've missed episode seven, uh, wind back the clock and tune in to episode seven where we spend a fair bit of time talking about IPv6 in CloudFront and a whole bunch of other services. Uh, but I'm really pleased to say that we've been adding more and more V6 support so that now EC2 instances in Amazon VPC um, offer native support for the IPv6 protocol. So IPv6 is enabled for exist can be enabled for existing and new VPCs uh, through the console, through the APIs, through the CLIs, uh, which means that um, you can use IPv6 on your EC2 instances to access the internet resources which are outside of AWS as well as those that are potentially connected to your VPC via Direct Connect. So if you have IPv6 on-prem, you can certainly uh, connect to it from the VPC and connect to our services, which is very, very useful. Now, the nice thing about that is this gives you the ability to operate uh, your VPCs in essentially a dual stack mode. And if you wind back to episode seven, I've spent a fair bit of time talking about how DNS even supports dual stacks uh, for IPv4 and V6. Um, so the nice thing about that is, um, you know, with the enablement of IPv6, your applications can also you know, be secure in the same way as they have been in the past, whereby security groups, uh, network ACLs and route tables all support v6. So the other cool thing about IPv6 is that um, we support those in the Internet Gateway, in VPC peering, VPC flow logs, and there is actually no additional charge for IPv6. Nice one. And uh, tell us about um, the the fact that each address is public and also internet routable. Yes, so by default, every v V6 address is public and very much internet routable. So for customers requiring uh, a private subnet on their IPv6 enabled VPCs, uh, we've introduced uh, a new resource within VPC called the egress only internet gateway, which means that um, once this is set up, it allows you to uh, have one-way access to the internet. So your IPv6 instances can actually uh, egress out to the open internet to connect to other resources. So the nice thing about that is that all incoming traffic from the internet is actually blocked and there's no additional charge uh, to use the egress-only internet gateways. So uh, data charges still apply as, as in the past, but uh, this is a great way of providing you a way of essentially netting out onto the open internet with uh, having, you know, firewall protection uh, for potentially incoming traffic. So very, very handy. So uh, I highly encourage everyone to go and have a play with uh, the VPC uh, support now for V6 uh, and uh, start getting more comfortable because uh, more and more organizations are using it. And in fact, a lot of IoT devices uh, now come with IPv6 V6 stacks uh, and they can now natively connect to uh, essentially your applications in VPC. Mm. Be interesting to see how that uh, adoption ramps up of uh, IPv6 as we go forward. Oh yes, well, it's many years in the making, right? Uh, we talked about it. it's been you know ten years ago announced that we're running out of IPv4 addresses, and uh, we managed to get a lot of mileage out of those. We did indeed. Now, Pete, uh, quite a lot's happened in the developer space, so um, I'm going to uh, give the floor to you for a bit to talk about some of that. But one of the most interesting things I think is that whenever you go and talk to customers about Lambda, one of the languages that often comes up uh, as one that customers would like for it to support is C-sharp. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have some good news, I believe. I do, and you guys probably uh, know that I'm a big uh, .NET C-sharp fan. So uh, I'm happy to say that uh, AWS Lambda supports .NET C-sharp. So <laughs> you can now develop your AWS Lambda functions uh, inside Visual Studio or 
you know, in, in Notepad or whatever you use for your IDE. Uh, so you can now build .NET Core 1.0 applications, which is what Lambda now supports. So we're adding uh, C Sharp on top of Node, Java, and Python, uh, which has already been supported well and truly inside Lambda. So, and the easiest way to get started is with uh, the AWS Toolkit for Visual Studio, and that includes uh, project templates for your individual C Sharp Lambda functions, as well as project templates for larger applications. Uh, and that, um, the actual add-in for Visual Studio allows you to publish projects straight into Lambda, directly into the AWS Cloud through a wizard that actually pops up when you want to publish your apps. Now, you can also manually create C-sharp Lambda functions as you can um, with other languages. You simply specify the Lambda runtime parameter and you have to say netcore 1.0. Uh, and then simply upload the zip file, which has all your NuGet dependencies uh, within that bundle. And then uh, obviously you want to include your DLL assemblies, um, which con essentially comprise of your application. So you can do this through the CLI, for the uh, AWS Lambda console. And if you really, really want to uh, go deep, you can also use AWS CloudFormation uh, and use the uh, relatively new AWS Serverless Application Specification, or SAM for short, for deploying a C-Shap Lambda functions. That sounds very interesting. One of the things that often comes up with the serverless approach is, is you know, how do you how do you define some of those applications? So is that something that Sam can help with? Absolutely. So there's been a lot of discussion around, you know, serverless frameworks for development and debugging. And uh, for those of you who've been using CloudFormation, and CloudFormation is a templatized way to define AWS resources so you can launch them together as a, as a complete stack. Um, and that's been great for spinning up infrastructure. But now SAM, so the AWS Serverless Application Model, uh, essentially is a, is a model that builds on top of uh, CloudFormation to support serverless applications. So it's natively supported by CloudFormation and it defines additional syntax to express serverless resources. So in other words, uh, if you look at a CloudFormation template, they contain resource types and uh, Sam adds the AWS serverless function, serverless API, simple simple table resource types, and those resource types essentially define the Lambda function, uh, the API gateway, potentially a Dynamo table um, that your application can be using. So this has been this has been released uh, under the Apache 2.0 um, uh, license model. Uh, and if you head over to uh, GitHub and check out AWS Labs, you can actually download and experiment with the actual tools, which we've open sourced, um, whereby you can actually extend that into your own tool chain into your own CI/CD pipelines uh, to be able to connect and combine uh, serverless functionality into CloudFormation. And while I'm talking about that, uh, I also want to mention something called um, um, chain sets. So when you create a stack via CloudFormation, you can always go back and change the stack, change the parameters that you might use for launching certain types of virtual machines uh, or other configurations. Well, with a developer, you know, Russ, you often end up changing things very frequently. Mm, so, absolutely. So the idea of a chain set is that as you change your application and you're evolving it, um, once you've deployed your application for the first time, it's up and running. So you, can, you then would go back to the original stack by CloudFormation that was created. You would say, hey, let's create a chain set. You submit the changes to the stack that you actually want to um, execute. So you, you've made the, your app changes. You then run the chain set and you get visibility of what that's going to do to your environment. And with CloudFormation, that could all, all, often result in the creation of new resources, removal of others. Uh, and the beauty of using the actual chain set model is that it actually gives you visibility of what will be changed. 
And you can say, hey, I don't want that to change. I'm going to make a different change set because I want a different side effect to actually occur. So it's a great way of um, closing off the loop for the developer, whereby if you change your application um, before you do a stack update, uh, you would do first the uh, change set. And then once you've got a view of what's going to change, if you're happy with what that's going to mean to your environment, you then execute the change set and CloudFormation will then rerun the stack and make those appropriate changes. So it's a very nice, uh, clever way of building in serverless support into CloudFormation to make our customers' lives easier. And I can I assume, Pete, you can manage that through the console, the CLR, the API, et cetera? Absolutely. Yes. And if you go to the, uh, the GitHub project, you'll actually find uh, the tooling and actually how to go about doing it, as well as some additional great documentation around what that's actually meant and potentially how you can tie it into your current tool chains. Fantastic. Now, uh, obviously, all of this developer-focused stuff is very exciting, but I got even more excited when I looked through your notes for today and saw, uh, I thought I saw a reference to uh, Dead Letter Circus. No, who no, 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 are no, no, no. Not Australian, <laughs> Australian rock band out of Brisbane. And I thought, fantastic. I'm not sure how you're going to weave that in, but uh, I was looking forward to that. And then I reread it. And it's actually Dead Letter Cues that you're going to talk about. Exactly, exactly. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the band, (laughs) I encourage you to go and Google. There's a great wiki page on them. But in terms of a Dead Letter Cue, a Dead Letter Cue, Really, the idea has been on for a long time. And if you've got a queue which has got you know, information queued up on it and your application is draining the queue to do something, as you would with SQS, for example, if your application crashes when it's processing that message that's actually been on queue, uh, you can get into a scenario once in a while, um, hopefully it's rare for you, whereby as the message gets picked up, it crashes your application. And that message goes back on the queue. And what you can end up in is this infinite loop where you pick up the message and it crashes the app and it puts it back on the queue, the app restarts, and, and it gets into this infinite loop. So we've, we've got support for that letter queue for um, now uh, to allow you to be able to um, handle Lambda scenarios where if your application gets affected uh, a number of times, we often retry when the Lambda function, for example, was to fail. So you can configure a dead letter queue, uh, which is essentially another queue which then receives that message uh, that's causing the problem. So if your Lambda function uh, does not execute um, or crashes a number of times, we will then take that message and put it onto a, onto a different queue called the dead letter queue, Russ. And that's how you actually avoid some of these you know, strange behaviors where you might not actually see something crashing and it's just you know, crashing and restarting. Uh, so the DLQ idea is that you know, if you have a dead letter queue assigned to a Lambda function, you can find that if you're, um, you know, we do retries and after two retries of the Lambda function, uh, we will actually take that message off the incoming queue and put it onto the dead letter queue uh, to, to notify that there is actually something wrong. And that could be a SQS queue that we'll put that message onto, or it could be an SNS topic, uh, which will then be received by your application, either another Lambda function or perhaps a, an out of bound application. So does that make sense for us? Did I hopefully explain it, it sufficiently? No, you, you did. Um, but when you were talking then, I was thinking uh, it kind of raised a question for me about a more general topic about how Lambda does actually do retries on errors. And I was just wondering if you could kind of give us a quick overview on that. Sure. Yeah, great question, actually. Um, so Lambda will attempt to process your application multiple times, right? Um, now, you know, as, 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 as well as the software can be written, occasionally you might find you know, there's an exception thrown. Um, so Lambda will try to twi- twice and then discard the, uh, the message. So the dead letter queue will pick up those uh, failed messages, like I said before. So that's really handy. But 
when you go back to the Lambda side of things, um, so Lambda can fail for a number of reasons. So some of the functions may not actually be invoked. So for example, you know, the function times out while trying to reach an endpoint. Uh, a function fails because uh, it can't parse the input. You know, the fun function experiences some kind of a resource constraint, such as, uh, you, know, um, you know, it's out of memory error or some other timeout. So those can actually, you know, cause the Lambda function to cause an exception and fail. So when these actually occur, uh, you know, you often will see an exception. Now, this exception can be handled uh, in a number of different ways. So as an example, if you're calling your Lambda function uh, synchronously, in other words, you call the Lambda function um, and it fails, you'll get a 429 error, which means, hey, go and f there's an error and you might want to retry call on that same APIs. Um, so you can put a try catch clause and uh, see what you can do to actually recover from that. Um, now, if you're actually calling your Lambda function through the API gateway, uh, also be mindful that uh, you can inject a different error message uh, or perhaps hopefully the same error message uh, that comes from the Lambda function back to the API gateway and then back to the caller. So, so the synchronous functions are, is how you would be handling that. And in the case of asynchronous invocations, um, you know, these are actually queued and, um, before, they are being, before the call is made to the Lambda function. So if the AWS Lambda is unable to fully process the event that's queued, it will automatically retry and it does it twice by default. And uh, there is actually a slight delay between the retries to make sure that um, the system actually behaves uh, nicely. Now, and if you have a specified dead letter queue, will push that message over to that topic uh, for SNS or SQS. Now, in the stream-based event scenarios, um, which might be something like draining a Kinesis stream uh, or dealing with a DynamoDB stream, uh, the AWS Lambda pulls the stream and invokes your Lambda function. So this is interesting. So if a Lambda function fails, the uh, AWS Lambda attempts to process the error batch of records that it's read until um, the time if it expires or has been fully processed by the application. So in other words, you pick a batch of Kinesis, Lambda function actually runs, um, and if it doesn't complete, it'll actually restart and try again. So this, this is why it's so useful to have dead letter queues uh, in those kind of scenarios. So think of it as um, you know, stream-based processing uh, via Lambda. Uh, it becomes very interesting. So think about putting appropriate application logic uh, into your applications for dealing with that. So that's a mouthful and uh, a definitely huge sidebar, but uh, certainly do have a look at the documentation and really better understand uh, the timeout mechanisms and the error handling so that if your application does encounter some kind of a, an error or an invalid message or timeouts, um, you've got some appropriate mechanisms to make sure you maintain high availability, Russ. Hey, Pete, quick question. When you were talking then about Lambda reading from Kinesis mm. and you said that um, that it will attempt to process the, the batch until the time the data expires, yes. is that the time that the data will expire from Kinesis? So if you've got the default Kinesis expiry for data of, of 24 hours, it'll be 24 hours, or obviously you can extend that That's exactly to, right. is that right? Yep, so it'll, it'll honor the settings for that um, uh, Kinesis stream. Okay, so that could be up to seven days if you've if you've increased it, it to that. It could be as high as that, but yes, by default, it's twenty four hours. But yes, it could be as high as seven days. So that can be a fair bit of backlog that builds up in your Kinesis stream. All right, fantastic. So uh, something else that was released while we were away was um, AWS Elastic Beanstalk support for mm. restoring re restoring <laughs> restoring terminated environments. Um, tell us about that. 
Yes, uh, it's uh, not, not storing, but restoring. Exactly right. Uh, so you can now restore AWS Elastic Beanstalk environments that have been terminated, uh, which is kind of cool. So if you've blown something away, you can actually go back to it and you can restore Elastic Beanstalk environments that were actually uh, within 42 days of the termination. So it's a fair bit of time. So stuff is still lingering in the system and we are able to recreate the environments and they will retain the original environment IDs, um, DNSC names, application versions, and also configuration options. Um, now you can do this from the console, from the CLI or the APIs to bring it back up. So it's uh, almost like restoring a zombie, if you like, back to being a, you know, a real environment. Uh, but be, be aware that if an environment already exists with the same name or, or DNS uh, URLs, uh, then obviously the, uh, the rebuild will actually fail. So you have to be mindful of that. But it's a great way of restoring environment that you've potentially blown away, either intentionally or by accident, um, up to 40 da 42 days uh, from the termination. So it's a very useful uh, long-term, I guess, restore mechanism uh, that we've put into Beanstalk to help you. Do, do you always say URL or do you sometimes say URL? I, I actually, you know what, I go between both, URL and URL. Depends on uh, how my brain kicks into gear, I think. But I think the, I think yeah. the ways I've actually used to say URL. Right, because when I've said URL to people, sometimes they've kind of looked at me strangely. They do, they do. And when I started doing it, I started getting the same way. So I, I then say URL instead of URL. <laughs> Um, now, Pete, yes. while you're on a roll, mm -hmm. tell us about streaming CloudWatch logs, please. Yes, so this is another thing that's uh, part of Beanstalk. So you can, so as of now, you can spin up um, uh, Beanstalk, and obviously they spin up EC2 instances behind the scenes, provided you've enabled auto scaling. Um, so it now provides you the option that you can stream your logs directly into CloudWatch logs. So in the past, uh, you may, they have been, may have been going into S3, for example, or you've been manually fetching those. So by enabling the log streaming uh, feature in the console, uh, clicking the retention to the number of days you'd like to save the logs, uh, and also configure the lifecycle, uh, whether the logs are saved after it is actually terminated. So this can actually save your data uh, for up to 60 days to keep the logs um, in the system. And the nice thing about obviously CloudWatch logs is you can, you know, do some filter analysis on them and actually have some out of band report reporting and notifications uh, in case you see some, you know, unusual behavior in the logs. Uh, and of course, you can also control this once the app uh, has been started via the CLI, the EB command line tool, and you can use the logs command line switch. Uh, to actually enable that. Just be careful, by the way, uh, this feature came in in late December, I think it was somewhere around the 20th. Uh, so this feature is available in containers as of the late December 2016. So if you've already got a long running environment, uh, you probably will need to um, uh, refresh your stack uh, for, for, for your Beanstalk deployment um, and make sure you're running on the latest version of the container. Otherwise, it uh, will not work. Well, Pete, that's fantastic. Now, I know that you love Beanstalk, so oh, I'm gonna let you fan. talk about one more thing. <laughs> before we leave Beanstalk. One more. Yes, and that's that's tying it back to X-Ray. So we mentioned X-Ray in one of the previous episodes um, as part of our reInvent recap. Uh, so so um, X-Ray, uh, X-Ray is, is a one of our new services and it helps you to understand how your application behaves. So for those of you who are on the AWS X-Ray preview, because it's currently in preview, so if you haven't got access, go and sign up. When you launch an AWS Beanstalk, uh, deployment you know, stack once again. Uh, we've now simplified the process of setting up your Beanstalk environment to support AWS X-Ray so you can more easily begin to analyze and debug your distributed applications which are actually using Beanstalk as a part of it. So what that does is it actually deploys the X-Ray daemon 
uh, into your EC2 instances, which supports Java, Node, and .NET, um, and makes it very, very simple. And what it does is it sets up the daemon to listen on port 2000. So if you are uh, already using something on port 2000, be very mindful that it may clash with that. So um, just a little, a little hint there. Uh, and what the actual daemon does, it gathers raw segment data and relays that to the AWS um, X-Ray API service. So the daemon simply collects that, aggregates it and passes it onto the service. So also make sure that uh, uh, the IAM policies are set up appropriately. But back, back onto uh, AWS X-Ray. So yes, it's in preview. Um, and what it does, it can actually understand how your application is behaving uh, and its underlying service APIs and performance. So it helps you to identify and troubleshoot the root causes of performance issues and errors in your distributed applications. Because the bigger they get, the harder it is to get is, is to see what's going on. So with X-Ray support in Beanstalk, it gives you an end-to-end -end view of all the requests as they, as they travel through your application and then shows you a map of your application's underlying components. So what it does for Beanstalk is that it simply gives you the ability in the, in the Beanstalk console to see what's going on. So Beanstalk will automatically install and start the daemon as a part of this. And then in the actual health section of your Elastic Beanstalk deployment in the console, uh, you can actually now have direct links to the metrics for things like latency and HTTP response codes for uh, your uh, traces as they are stored in X-Ray. So for example, you can simply click on a metric such as um, the P99 percentile for latency, and that'll take you straight through to X-Ray uh, so you can get a filtered view of all the traces that actually meet that specific criteria. So Rasa, it's another way of integrating, you know, application visibility and monitoring uh, deeper into your um, Beanstalk applications. Yeah, very nice indeed. Now, one more thing, Pete, I saw, uh, I saw one of uh, the things we'd released and I thought about you because I know that you love mm, containers. I do. And I also know how much you love Windows. And so when I saw that Amazon ECS was going to support Windows Server containers, I thought Pete's going to be beside himself with excitement. Over the moon, and, and I certainly am. Yes, a uh, big fan of Windows and containers and, uh, you know, doing a lot of uh, .NET Core, uh, CLR, you know, running both on Windows and on Linux. Uh, so I was super excited to see that the ECS team uh, added support for Windows containers. Now, look, admittedly, it is actually in beta, um, and it uh, supports Windows Server containers. Uh, it supports Windows 16, Docker. So it's enabling Windows users to basically package their applications into images uh, and then be able to run them equally as well on Windows as uh, most people have been using on Linux. So it's a really nice way to see how you can now start to use, um, you know, different underlying EC2 instances uh, through the you know, Elastic Container Service uh, because it provides a lovely abstraction layer on top of the underlying, um, you know, uh, instances. So it's a great way to be able to run your apps uh, cross-platform. So for those that are building interesting cluster scenarios where occasionally you may need to run a container still, but happen to talk to a Windows underlying subsystem, uh, you can certainly do that as well. So uh, yeah, really pleased to add that, Russ. Um, and yes, very excited about this new edition. I knew you would be, Pete. I knew you would be. But you know what? I've been very selfish. I've been talking about developer stuff as I always do. So I'll let you be a little bit selfish now and uh, talk about big data as we always do. So Russ, tell us about what's been happening in the world of Elasticsearch. Well, Pete, Elasticsearch, uh, as you know, is extremely popular amongst uh, our customers who love its flexibility uh, and its ability to scale. So for those of you who don't know about Elasticsearch, it's an open source 
engine that started life as a full text search engine but is now used a lot for log analytics and application monitoring etc because uh, it's extremely fast extremely easy to work with and Elasticsearch 5 was released uh, last year late last year and we've now made that available on Amazon Elasticsearch so Amazon Elasticsearch is the managed version that we have of Elasticsearch and so a lot of customers are very keen to get their hands on the latest version of that now there's a couple of really nice things in version five, mm-hmm. uh, one of which is support for painless scripting. Now, when what I read that, I thought, uh, I thought, what's painless scripting? And that is actually the name of it. Okay. It is actually called painless, uh, which I thought was uh, was rather nice. Um, and that's basically a new inbuilt scripting language, which uh, is a little bit more um, advanced and, and richer than previous scripts that allow you to do all sorts of fun stuff. Wow. So that's worth looking at. Uh, obviously, performance is always uh, something you look for in a new release, so there's much better indexing performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk about it being significantly better as well. So if you are one of those customers that does a lot of real-time indexing uh, to update real-time dashboards, etc., then that's going to be something worth looking at. And a new ingestion API as well. So um, as you know, Logstash is the, the companion to, um, to Elasticsearch yeah. in terms of ingestion, mm-hmm. and there's a bunch of new functions there for transformation as the data comes in so you can do things like grok split convert date things like that which um which again just makes life a little bit easier mm-hmm. to do that on ingestion and how about kibana because kibana often goes uh for the ride with that as well what's new there yeah that's exactly right so the traditional uh elk stack the mm-hmm. elk stack so elastic search is the e log stash is the l and then kibana is the k at the end there so kibana gives you that nice uh, those nice funky dashboards that you see mm-hmm. that's kind of this is the the visual component that goes with elastic search and uh, kibana 5 is the companion to the new elastic search version 5 and that's got a lot of uh, new features as well so i think it's been looks as if it's been kind of rewritten from the ground up so uh, lots of fun stuff there in including the ability, I think, to um, to make it easier to share uh, some of your analysis with um, with uh, with other colleagues as well. Right. And what about, so, uh, yeah, great yeah, news on Elasticsearch. Yeah, and what about, what about some of the new free tier offerings now? Because that's, that's an interesting one as well. Yeah, so what we've done with that is we've actually now, you've got a choice of instance types to, uh, to be in the free tier. So you can either use a T2 micro or a T2 small and... Um, you've now got 750 hours per month of a single AZ instance of either of those. Fabulous. Uh, plus, yeah, plus 10 gig a month of, uh, of EBS storage as well. So that is a great way for customers to to, to play with it and, and ha- get their arms around it and have a feel for it without obviously having to, um, to pay for any of it. Sure. And what about all the cool, funky, phonetic support now that's also coming along? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, so you play charades. Peak, I, obviously. Do. I do. Uh, recently, and, I do. And one of, <laughs> one of one of my favourite things to do in charades when I'm when I'm got a bit stuck and I'm trying to explain to my um, my teammates what I'm talking about is the the thing where you pull on your ear mm-hmm. and you and and that's the sounds like yep. uh, function. That's right. So uh, we've now um, got support for that phonetic analysis plugin mm-hmm. in our Elasticsearch version two point three. Uh, which is essentially that. So it's, it's a sounds like function. So instead of having to get the search term exactly right, you can just basically say sounds like, and then it'll use um, that funky algorithm to kind of find search results that sound like what you're searching for. That's that's actually very cool because quite often people mispel, mis, you know, mistype stuff. 
And, uh, you know, quite often when you, when you do a, a search of some sort, you know, the, the search and it gives you back, you know, we think you may be looking for this. So this is the scenario where this can actually help you. Fabulous. Very cool. That's right. Because we're, well, that we're also lazy now is because everything, every application we use corrects us if we spell it wrongly. So, so we don't bother to, to write anything down correctly. Yes. I mean, I sent a professional um, peel in the back of the little red squiggly line in Word. I mean, if not for that, I'd probably be a <laughs> considered inadequate email writer. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I should just mention that even though we've released version uh, five, the previous version, so 1.5 and also 2.3, of Elasticsearch are still available. Um, obviously, a lot of customers still on those on those previous versions. So uh, there's support there for those as well. Fabulous. Now, one of the other favorites is uh, Apache Spark uh, and uh, EMR. So tell us a little bit about uh, the latest releases. So following on from the theme of keeping up with the open source version, so with, with EMR, which is our managed Hadoop service, there are so many uh, fantastic open source projects that plug into EMR and the Hadoop ecosystem that one of the things we're very focused on is keeping up to date with the open source community because they're obviously releasing uh, tremendous new updates all the time and we want to make sure we get them into our customers' hands as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So we've just released a new version of uh, EMR 5.3 and that's got upgraded versions of uh, a lot of the most popular open source projects. So new versions of Spark, Hive, uh, Hue, Uzi, uh, and also uh, Apache Flink. Now, what's Flink, Russ? That's a very cool name, and uh, you know, it almost sounds like very, very, you know, hilarious innovation. But uh, more seriously, <laughs> what is Flink? <laughs> so, Flink, Flink is German for quick or nimble, mm -hmm. and uh, so as the name suggests, uh, you'd think it would be something to do with uh, with real time data, and it is. It's a, it's an open source uh, stream processor framework. Now. So how's that different if you're in this, from Spark? Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. So people in this space, the first question they say is, well, how is that different from Spark Streaming? Now, Spark Streaming has obviously become very, very popular uh, for this type of thing. And there's a few differences, but I think in a nutshell, the main difference is that, that Flink is a true streaming framework. So the way that Spark works is that it approximates streaming by doing micro-batching. Okay. So it's essentially a, a batch framework, but the batches are very, very small. And so um, you can kind of approximate um, a real-time stream, whereas actually Flink comes at it from the other direction. It's actually a real-time stream that can also approximate batching. So for, uh, for, for a lot of customers, they don't necessarily need that, mm -hmm. that type of approach, but there are some applications where you absolutely need the type of speed that you get from Flink. So, um, so I think a lot of customers will be will be having a good look at that. So really, it's about the uh, the micro-sized bytes of uh, of the data flowing through the streams. That's right. Yeah, and and if you have if you need the ability to react very very quickly to those, then uh, then Flink could be something uh, that's worth checking out. Okay. And what about the uh, the big data blog? Yeah, out? so when I was when I was looking at um, at uh, the the new EMI release, I remembered that we have the the big data blog, uh, which is part of our kind of um, portfolio of blogs now that we um, that we publish. And we have many, and we do, yeah. And they're uh, they're they're a fantastic resource because there's lots of great patterns and use cases, etc. There. So I just wanted to um, to give a shout out to that if if anyone's interested in um, really interesting big data patterns, just. Uh, into your favorite search engine. If you just put AWS Big Data Blog, um, you'll probably find it there. Um, and that's been going for a couple of years now. So there's a great mm -hmm. archive of some really uh, interesting uh, architectures and patterns, and occasionally we'll get customer 
um, customer guests on as well to talk about their architecture. So, uh, so a great resource, Pete. Nice, nice. And what about the uh, the, red, the Redshift improvements in the console that have uh, come through? Yeah, so just a couple of quick uh, Redshift things. So one is that we've improved the, the workload management uh, experience on the console. And I wanted to mention this because workload management is an important part of managing your Redshift cluster. Mm-hmm. And basically what it allows you to do is to manage the priorities of different uh, user groups within your within your Redshift cluster. So you may have certain groups for whom uh, they need priority over other groups um, or other processes. So sometimes, for example, you might have a, an ETL process, so a, you know an overnight transformational process, and that needs to have the priority overnight. Mm-hmm. But then obviously once the users come in in the morning, you want them and their their queries to take to take precedence. So the workload management piece just allows you to allocate resource within the cluster to certain different groups. And so we've made that a little bit, little bit easier to work with now. And we've also here added the Z standard compression as well. Yeah, so one of the interesting things about Redshift is that we, we like to compress the data that you give us. Um, and the reason that we do that is primarily for performance reasons. Uh, now, traditionally, you know, when you think about compression, you think about it being a trade-off between saving disk space but potentially um, having slower performance. Whereas with Redshift, we actually save disk space and it's faster. Uh, and the reason is because if we can compress your data into um, a smaller block, mm-hmm. then obviously with each disk read, we're going to um, get more of your data out and then we can actually decompress that extremely quickly. So we're always looking at ways to improve the the algorithms that we're using within Redshift to compress your data. And to that end, we've added something called the Z standard, which is works primarily with uh, with char and varchar types of columns. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially if you've got within a column a really wide range of short and long strings, yeah. it deals with that extremely well. So just um, just to add to the the list of encodings that we've got there for you. Fantastic. Yes, look, uh, I think compression is very, very important. And uh, yeah, for whether it's Redshift, whether it's EMR, um, compression can be really your friend. Now, changing gears a little bit um, and talking RDS Oracle. Now, tell us about the outbound network access for a custom DNS service. Yeah, so just a quick one. So in... December last year, so just um, at the end of the year, we added support for outbound network access for RDS uh, Oracle. And what this allowed you to do was essentially to allow the database to communicate with external servers, specifically for the purpose of sending emails um, using the UTL SMTP package. Now, when we first did that, it was just for for our own um, DNS servers. And we've just now added the ability to do that with custom DNS servers as well. So just made that a little bit, a little bit uh, broader there. And you can configure it via the uh, DHCP options uh, in the VPC to allow your um, yes, Oracle database to do that as well. That's right. Actually, that's a good point, Pete. The database instance does need to be in a VPC to use that feature. So make sure it's there, or if not, then uh, simply move your database into VPC because, uh, yes, you can't do that in the non-VPC deployments, which I'm guessing there wouldn't be that many of. No, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, what about, this is a cool one. I really like this one. This is the uh, the easy migration from MySQL to Aurora. That's, this is super exciting. This is this is great, actually. So, so uh, if many, as many of you would know, uh, Amazon Aurora is... Uh, an RDS engine uh, that we have developed, and it's uh, completely MySQL compatible. 
So the first thing the customer said, well, how do I get from MySQL to Aurora? And so originally we, we made that very easy by allowing you to take a snapshot of your MySQL database and then restoring that into Aurora. Now that sounds all well and good, but what happens if you've got uh, relatively high throughput on that MySQL database and things are trickling in as you're taking the snapshot? How do you, how do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. So previously you had to then, once you'd got the cluster set up, you then had to kind of replicate manually, which is a bit painful. Yes. So we, we had a bit of a think about that. And then we said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we allow a customer to set up a read replica of their MySQL database, and but specify that it's going to be an Aurora read replica? Very cool. So what that does is that then tells RDS to then replicate between the master and this this read replica slave. Now, so you just basically just kick that off, and then once that's basically caught up. You wait until that lag has reached zero, which means that the read replica is in sync with the master. And then, Pete, you simply promote that read replica to be a standalone Aurora cluster. So you just flip the switch? What do you think about that? Yeah, I love it. Just flipping the switch and uh, you're going to run from one to the other with zero downtime, which is exactly what most customers want. And if, and if you already are pushing the limits of uh, uh, MySQL, as those of you who have done it, it's very challenging to be able to you know, even stop and copy it and move it over because there's such a high volume of data in there. So this scenario is just uh, very, very clever, very simple uh, to help you, you know, make a zero, zero downtime transition. Love exactly. It. Now, I'll just, I'll just jump in there, Pete, because for listeners who haven't been listening to our reInvent update yes. and, are, and are shouting at their, uh, at their podcast saying, where's Aurora for Postgres? Mm-hmm. That is something we did announce at reInvent. So uh, you will be seeing uh, an Amazon Aurora flavor of Postgres as well. Cool. Thank you for, for, for uh, letting everyone know in case they actually missed the update. And if you have, um, certainly go back there the last two episodes and uh, do a rapid catch up because uh, there certainly have been a lot of announcements. Now, if that wasn't enough around uh, replication of data, now we can do cross-region replication with encryption, Russ. We can, Pete. So previously, you were able to do cross-region read replicas with RDS, uh, with MariaDB, MySQL, and Postgres. But you could only do it with unencrypted databases. So a lot of customers said, uh, could you please do this for encrypted databases? And so we've done exactly that. So if your RDS instance of MariaDB, MySQL, or Postgres is encrypted with KMS, so KMS being our key management service, then you can then set up um, a read replica target that's actually in a completely different region. Now, there's a couple of use cases where you might want to do this, and the obvious one is that you may want, you may have some users who are in a different region to where the, the primary database is, but you want them to have nice low latency reads on their data. Uh, and so that's one reason that you might want to kind of have a local, a local copy. And the other one, of course, is, is for DR purposes as well. Yes, and look, being multi-region is becoming more and more of an ask from our customers, uh, whereby they want to have, you know, much, much higher level of HA. Um, and, you know, whether, whether you're, uh, you know, a mid-sized organization or enterprise, um, that's becoming far more frequent as part of our AWS conversation as, as architects. So uh, this is certainly going to, uh, you know, address a lot of those uh, questions and say, hey, how do I go about doing that? So, yeah, Russ, lots of awesome roundup uh, around the data side of things. Yeah, some, some, great, some great updates there, Pete. And tell us, before we go, of course. one more, just yes. do one more. There's always room for uh, one more. 
give us a quick workspace update. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of workspaces. If you haven't tried it, go and spin one up. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, so starting today, well, it's already out there now. Um, it's, um, so all newly launched AWS workspaces will now use the general purpose SSD storage for both the root and the user volumes at no additional cost for us. That's really mm. cool. That means that the volumes provide better performance, uh, you know, much better performance than the magnetic volumes that you may be using if you've been running your instance for, for a while. Uh, so you now get faster boot times, uh, better user experiences around applications that are fairly disk intensive and uh, you know, disks can introduce a fair bit of latency for certain use cases. So existing workspaces can be rebuilt to take advantage of this. So simply do an upgrade to use the SSD volume for their storage and that'll actually upgrade drive C which is the uh, obviously the system volume as well as the D drive which is your data volume so the contents of those will be rebuilt uh, from the last previous snapshots so you should experience zero data loss in the in the process of actually going to a better faster workspace at no additional cost so this is available at no extra charge um, uh, and they are available in all the regions where you have Amazon workspaces so Go forth and uh, and speed up your workspace um, desktops. Pete, who could say no to a faster, better workspace at no extra cost? Absolutely. Hey, that's awesome. And that's you know, I was thinking about this uh, over the last few shows. We've been talking about Christmas and you know all of the reinvent things that came our way. And uh, I kind of started thinking we do give away a lot of cool things for free. So uh, it's a it's an interesting thing. It's a, it's a Christmas that kind of continues 365 days a year and. Uh, you know, with uh, so many price reductions and adding things to a free tier, um, it's going to be a very exciting 2017. It's going to be like it's your birthday every day. It's your birthday. It's your birthday. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I think we've uh, run out of time. We are indeed. Well, thanks, uh, everyone. And uh, we shall look forward to another episode very soon. So thanks for tuning in. Ciao and bye for now. Bye-bye. Signing off, this is Russ. And this is Dr. Pete. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.